This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. I'm Connor Reed with words to that effect. There's this great short story called They're Made Out of Meat by Terry Bisson. It's about these two aliens who've been charged with cataloguing and contacting all sentient life forms in a particular part of the universe. They've just encountered a new species which, to their confusion, appears to be made entirely out of meat. The first alien is somewhat exasperated, trying to explain this idea to the incredulous second alien. The second alien wants to know who made the machines, who made the radio signals they've just encountered. The meat made the machines, the first alien explains. That's ridiculous. How can meat make a machine? You're asking me to believe in sentient meat? And the conversation continues like this, as the first alien explains that, yes, this life form is made entirely out of meat. They have meat brains, they communicate with meat. You know how when you slap or flap meat, it makes a noise? The alien explains. Well, they talk by flapping their meat at each other. The aliens are appalled and somewhat disgusted at the idea of talking to meat, so contravening their official orders, they mark the sector unoccupied and move on without contact. Long before this point, the reader has realised, of course, that the meat is us. We're the ones flapping our meat at each other to communicate. It's a perfectly crafted short story. It's funny and light-hearted with these great turns of phrase, but it's also captivating and thought-provoking. It achieves what the best science fiction does. It transforms what's normal and therefore maybe unquestioned into something strange and uncertain. It forces us to confront our conceptions and misconceptions about ourselves, about our humanity. And it also brings up the idea of humans as simply meat. It's dealt with in a slightly different fashion here, but this is a widespread and influential idea. And it's something I'll get back to in a little bit more detail in a bit. Because this is an episode about who we are as humans. And more importantly, where we're going. About a future in which technology and biology have merged in ways that are in equal part fascinating and terrifying. A future of unparalleled technological ingenuity, but with deeply problematic ethical concerns. It's a future that sounds like science fiction because, in some ways, it is. But it's a world that's being designed right now, today. Maybe if you could just introduce yourself. Yeah, I'm Mark O'Connell. I'm a writer, a journalist from Dublin, and I wrote a book called To Be a Machine, which has a really long subtitle, which I can never remember, unfortunately. Uh, I should have it written down in front of me, but I don't. That's a terrible self-introduction. But <laughs> <laughs> that's the gist. A longer introduction might mention that Dr. Mark O'Connell has a PhD in English, is a books columnist for a Slate, a staff writer at The Millions, and a regular contributor to magazines and newspapers in Ireland, the UK, and the US. And To Be a Machine, his recent publication, is a really fantastic book. If you're interested in technology and Silicon Valley or just, you know, life and death, you should definitely read this book. 
that subtitle he mentions really is quite long. It's Adventures Among Cyborgs, Utopians, Hackers, and the Futurists Solving the Modest Problem of Death. It's a book exploring a movement called transhumanism. Like transhumanism is, well, strictly speaking, it's a, it's a social movement um, that is kind of uh, oriented towards using technology to kind of push out the boundaries of the human condition to kind of um, to like become something more than the human animal through taking either taking technology into ourselves through things like uh, implants um, like you know implanting microchips into your body uh, it includes like crazy speculative ideas like um, sort of scanning the the brain and uploading the consciousness to to a machine um, but it's all ultimately kind of oriented towards transcending the kind of biological uh, condition of of being human and ultimately it's all about being immortal really if you're thinking at this stage that something like uploading our consciousness sounds a little bit like science fiction well you'd be right science fiction has been at the forefront of technological solutions to death for quite some time now the genre has also long sought to explore the divisions between the human and the non-human, between, say, natural intelligence and artificial intelligence, between robots and humans, and those areas where the distinctions can break down, clones and genetically modified humans, cyborgs and uploaded consciousness. Which is why I wanted to talk to Dr. Thomas Connolly, who has in fact just finished a PhD in Maynooth University in Ireland looking at precisely this whole area, the ways we depict our future selves in fiction and what that says about us, particularly when the lines between the human and the non-human start to blur. And in this respect, I was particularly intrigued by the story of the Oncomouse. Oncomouse uh, was a genetically modified, or is a genetically modified mouse that was developed in the early 80s in the Harvard Medical School. And it was designed to be um, particularly prone to developing cancerous tumours which made it really useful for use in cancer research. I thought it was particularly significant because it was manipulating nature on a sort of genetic level. So you're not merely sort of um, changing nature, but you're literally sort of producing it uh, for human ends, for human use. And so I thought this blurred the lines between sort of human and non-human in, in quite a sort of fundamental way. So the Uncle is it's not just a natural being. It obviously is a natural being. It's a, it's a product of nature, but it's also very clearly a product of culture. It's not something that occurs uh, naturally, down to the genomic level. There are obvious implications for humanity in all of this. You're creating beings that are not found in nature. What about radically manipulating people on a genomic level? What happens to the boundaries between the human and the non-human? Ankomaus produced some very mixed reactions. There was a lot of controversy over it at the time because it was advertised. You know, it, it was a product as well. This is the other thing about Ankomaus. It's a it's a corporate entity. Um, it, the patent for it belonged to Dupont for a long time. I don't think it belongs to them anymore. But it's a it's a patented animal. It's a, it's literally a corporate animal. Um, and so there was obviously a lot of sort of um, ethical discomfort around the idea that an actual living breed of animal can be also a sort of consumer commodity. So that was on the sort of ethical level. Uh, but it has also been a very um, a frequent sort of a character in post-humanist thought. And a lot of post-humanist writers um, and thinkers have been very interested in the sort of ramifications of it, the sort of way that the Uncle Mouse blurs what would 
commonly or conventionally be considered to be quite um, separate realms. Many people were outraged at the idea of Ankhamaus. They thought that it violated the sanctity of nature. But then others saw it as something to be celebrated. Perhaps its most famous advocate has been the renowned scholar and thinker Donna Haraway. Donna Haraway's great sort of um, theoretical idea has been the cyborg. And the, the cyborg for Donna Haraway is a being that sort of um, transcends kind of traditional categories or sort of sits quite kind of uneasily between different categories that would previously have been seen to be quite distinct. So uh, beings that sort of exist somewhere between the human and the natural. Because the way that Donna Haraway interpreted um, the sort of tradition of Western thought was that it's been quite oppressive, it has been quite, um, I suppose it hasn't always been very open to, to kinds of beings that don't fit a very standard sort of generic mold. So the history of Western thought has been the history of sort of white, male, Anglo-Saxon thinkers, and that creatures like the Ankomas sort of serve to kind of undermine those kind of clearly established categories. And so she sort of saw the Ankomas as being um, I think she described it as a sort of sister um, to the sort of feminist movement. The feminist movement also very interested in challenging uh, preconceived ideas. So there's this divide in how you can interpret something like the Oncomouse. On one hand, it offers a way to radically break down and question these long-standing boundaries to perhaps lead to a more profound understanding of the natural world. On the other, it's an animal, a life created and patented by a company. In this way, nothing, not even life itself, is outside the control of humans and, more importantly, human corporations. And these are ideas which lurk in the background of the transhumanist movement. In science fiction, then, we can play around with ideas like this. We can explore what it means to truly live in a transhumanist society or to move beyond the human entirely to a post-human world. Science fiction writers have been doing this for quite a long time now. Many were extremely optimistic writers like E.E. E. Doc Smith. Who was uh, one of the great, kind of, the first great pulp writers of the 1920s and 1930s. And he was really interested in technology as, as a sort of transparent tool for just increasing human abilities. So his stories are just full of all sorts of crazy science where his characters are, are creating devices and using these to, to do all sorts of wonderful things. So traveling through space and projecting their mind across um, millions and millions of light years and, and fighting with other people, having sort of mental battles with other people. It was a really sort of um, very like, celebratory approach to technology and what technology could potentially do. But of course not everyone was quite so enamoured with the idea. But then on the dystopian side you also have writers who are very um, concerned with the effects that technology has on sort of on traditional human nature. That If you manipulate humans too much using technology, what you're left with are not kind of humans in the traditional sense anymore. Then you have a, a new kind of being. And, um, and in this sense, probably the most famous novel uh, on this dystopian side is probably Brave New World by Aldous Huxley, uh, which was published in 1932. And in this novel, Huxley imagines a sort of uh, technologically saturated society where every facet of human life has become technologically controlled to the point where people really don't have um, autonomy anymore over their own bodies or over their own lives. So this is sort of the inverse to the um, utopian idea of transcendence, this dystopian idea of control and loss of autonomy. But let's jump forward 50 years to the 1980s, to a movement called cyberpunk. Cyberpunk is a subgenre of science fiction that combines advanced technology with 
gritty, urban, violent, and frequently dystopian settings. Low life and high tech is how it's sometimes been described. If you can picture the world of Blade Runner, you get a pretty good idea. The cyberpunk novel par excellence is William Gibson's hugely influential Neuromancer. Gibson coined the term cyberspace, and the novel centers on the virtual world of The Matrix. This is the same Matrix which the Wachowskis would later adapt for their film of the same name. The novel dramatizes and problematizes so many of the ideas around transhumanism. The main character, Case, repeatedly dismisses his body as meat, and we're back to this idea again. His only interest is in accessing the Matrix, a space of vast potential where he can do the sorts of things he can never achieve in real life. But at the beginning of the novel, his nervous system has been damaged by a toxin, leaving him unable to enter the Matrix. So there's this desire for a type of utopian transcendence, but Case and the reader is repeatedly reminded of the limitations and reality of the physical body. There's a desire for utopian transcendence, but also an inability to fully escape from the reality of the physical body. Neuromancer is a novel, to bring us back to the beginning of this episode, in which characters repeatedly dismiss their body as worthless meat. Cyberpunk was a product of the 1980s, and it flourished alongside the beginnings of the transhumanist movement, an influence on the cyborgs, utopians, hackers, and futurists of Mark O'Connell's book. It's difficult to say exactly where transhumanism begins because like the minute you start talking about it you start encountering kind of problems of of definition because you know you can define it in a very kind of broad way as in like you know the belief that we should use technology and science to transcend our humanity well what does that actually mean does that mean um like wearing eyeglasses does it mean um, you know, wearing a pacemaker, does it mean, you know, you can define it so broadly that it basically means sort of medical science or whatever. But really, in terms of what I'm talking about, in terms of like the distinct social movement that I'm looking at in the book, really that kind of starts in, I would say, the late 80s, early 90s with a movement called extropianism, which grew directly out of um, the kind of culture of of Silicon Valley, really, of Northern California. A tech-based movement which involves unfailing optimism, vast technical expertise, and in most cases, ridiculous amounts of money. I mean, where else would you be if not Silicon Valley? What I'm looking at in the book is a very kind of particular social movement that um, involves like a relatively limited number of people with very set kind of concerns and preoccupations. But the thing that I found very quickly when I started looking into the the movement for the book is that the social movement itself, as in people who like explicitly describe themselves as transhumanists and go to meetings and are members of the Transhumanist Association and all that kind of stuff, that's the relatively small subset of people in the tech world who hold some version of these ideas. I mean, if you go to Silicon Valley and you start talking to programmers and engineers, um, people who work in tech, you'll find that although they might not identify as transhumanists, they'll kind of be on board with some version of that future. So I think that that sort of definition of transhumanist is much broader. And that would include people like uh, Elon Musk, I would say, at the kind of more prominent end of of the scale. Um, And, you know, I write a lot in the book about Peter Thiel, who doesn't describe himself as a transhumanist, doesn't use the word as such, but to all intents and purposes is. 
So, what exactly are we talking about here? How are transhumanists planning to live forever? Well, there are a number of possibilities. Perhaps the most well-known path to immortality is one that's been around for quite a while now, cryogenics. Freezing your body, or in many cases, just your head, and hoping that at some point in the future you get unfrozen. It's a bit of a shot in the dark, though. It is, of course, expensive, and you're basically just hoping that the facility you're frozen in continues to exist, and the funds don't run out, until such time in the future that the science exists to bring you back to life, in whatever form that might take. But, and of course, this is the attraction, it is kind of better than the alternative. It is a possible afterlife? Technological resurrection? I mean, if I was fabulously wealthy, I don't know, i consider it. What I have to lose, I suppose. Really though, when it comes to transhumanism, there are two major strands. The first, wildly speculative, and the second, already here, it's already in existence. So the first is the idea of brain uploading. It's kind of the, the one thing that all transhumanists agree on, that it, this is like a necessary and desirable next stage for uh, human development, and it, it sort of needs to happen. Like, how it happens is, like, it's completely speculative. Like, the technology is so far away from existing that it it, it, it kind of only operates within the realm of kind of speculation and discussion. Um, but the idea is that you would, uh, I mean, the theory, I suppose, is that the human brain or the human, like, like consciousness itself is is reducible to code because it's a matter of like neurons either firing or not firing so it can be kind of mapped in that sense um and so although it's like a horrendously infinitely complex problem in theory you can kind of uh, render the operations of neurons which is consciousness in this view uh you can render that in uh in code and therefore it becomes that kind of software and you can then run that software on a hardware other than the sort of three pounds of of meat that that it currently runs on which is the human brain and so this is something that like almost all transhumanists want to happen and so you would either upload yourself out of your body after you die or even while you're still alive you would extract your consciousness and, and run it either as a kind of a disembodied intelligence in the cloud or whatever or what most people seem to envision is more uploading it to some like non-human substrate uh, so like a robot basically what people have been imagining in various ways in science fiction for the last century although we are definitely not quite there yet that's like way 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 from anything that is remotely achievable at present and you know even uh, there are i think most neuroscientists would insist that it's not even theoretically possible. Like I talked to a guy called uh, Miguel Nicolelis, who's um, a very prominent uh, Brazilian neuroscientist whose work in the area of like brain machine interfaces is uh, really kind of um, inspiring and important to transhumanists. And he says explicitly that the idea that you could translate uh, human consciousness into computation is completely nonsensical. It's absurd. It's never going to happen. Then there's the other main strand, and I should say that this is research that is often extremely well-funded by high-profile Silicon Valley investors and other figures. So this second area is the merging of technology and biology, becoming a cyborg. An area which is much more concrete is happening right now, which is people becoming cyborgs by... Um, 
like taking technology into their bodies. And so, yeah, I hung out with a bunch of uh, guys in in Pittsburgh and Pennsylvania who kind of uh, are, I guess they describe themselves as like DIY cyborgs. They um, design kind of technologies that they implant into their own bodies. Um, And it's really sort of low tech stuff in a way, like it allows them to open doors by waving their hands and like take biometric measurements and stuff like that. But at the level of like, provocation or gesture um it's it's pretty radical stuff like they they see themselves as the next stage in human evolution or whatever so this is happening now it's being widely researched and experimented with some of it is biohackers with questionable levels of medical expertise implanting objects into their bodies without anesthesia things like a type of magnet you can insert into your fingertips to be able to sense magnetic fields for whatever reason you may want to do that Sometimes, though, it's far less DIY, such as the work of the well-known English engineer Kevin Warwick. He's had an electrode array implanted into his arm, which is directly connected to his nervous system. So then he can connect that to the internet. So in one experiment, the implant was connected to a robotic arm in England while he was in New York. And then when the robot arm was touched in the UK, he would feel the sensations directly in his arm in the US. His wife has had a similar implant too, so they have experienced a human-to-human sensory connection via the internet, which is pretty insane. These types of technological advances could have profoundly positive consequences for humanity as a whole, but there's no denying that the people involved in transhumanism often tend to be somewhat lacking in diversity. Well, yeah, I mean, that's the first thing that you notice when you start to kind of investigate this world, and it's something I kind of bring into the discussion very early on when I write about the first sort of encounter that I have in, in London with the um, the London futurists who are kind of a transhumanist group. And, you know, the, really the first thing I noticed was that the weird irony of the fact that there are all these people sitting around talking about these like vast kind of radical changes that are imminent uh, and how, you know, the meaning of being human is going to absolutely change through technology in the near future. These really kind of radical ideas uh, about change and like everyone in the room is yeah as you say like a white male between i mean with some exceptions obviously but overwhelmingly white men uh in in their 20s 30s 40s so why these people well there are a number of reasons some more obvious than others you know in a way you could say it's to do with maybe the demographics of the tech world of of silicon valley um which is kind of notoriously um sort of narrow in terms of its um, demographic makeup or whatever. Or you could say that possibly there's something about this kind of like radical optimism, version of optimism, that what, you know, if you're not already in a position of considerable privilege in the world, you're probably not going to consider the fact that you are mortal to be a huge issue. You know, it's kind of like, as I put in the book, it's kind of like the ultimate first world problem. The fact that you're going to die you know, if you're able to sit around worrying about the fact that you're going to die at 85, it probably, not to be too glib, but it probably means that you're not overly encumbered by other kind of uh, social and economic problems. You know, I didn't encounter that many people or any people really who were um, poor or in other ways drastically underprivileged who were also concerned about the fact that they weren't going to die. It's kind of a, a white male preoccupation for whatever reason. Um, and so I, like, I don't really go into the sort of socioeconomic questions all that deeply in the book. Um, 
but I feel like they're kind of hovering there over the whole over the whole thing. And then there's the issue of the body itself. If you live in a society where your everyday life is significantly affected by, say, the colour of your skin or your physical abilities, then it's not exactly easy to ignore the body. I think that one of the issues with transhumanism sometimes is that it sort of forgets the, the pivotal role that the body plays in the sort of formation of identity and tends to treat the body sometimes as being just sort of a vessel that the mind sort of sits in and that can be very easily sort of um, removed from without too much kind of fundamental change. Thomas Connolly again. And um, One of the great thinkers of posthumanist thought in Catherine Hales um, sort of begins her, her exploration of posthumanism with this question um, or with this assumption that you can remove a mind from a body and put it into a a technological jar and that people's experiences of the world will be fundamentally the same and that she says that this idea is really quite sort of flawed because it ignores that role that the body plays and particularly for people for whom the body has maybe played a greater role in their identity formation um, than other people so um, certainly in the history of science fiction um, a lot of this transhumanist stuff has been written by people for whom their bodies have not necessarily been a sort of problem you know the history of uh, science fiction is the history of mainly sort of white english-speaking men writing for other white english-speaking men um, whereas if your relationship towards your body is a bit more um, complex then it becomes more difficult to imagine what a world might be like escaping from that and it brings us back to cyberpunk that excitement mixed with ambivalence, that necessary scepticism and cynicism when it comes to technological breakthroughs. You may be brought back from your cryogenic slumber, for example, but by whom and under what circumstances? What sort of future would it be when the 1% were not simply phenomenally wealthy, but also immortal? What if you could upload your brain, but the service was provided by a company that would then monitor and monetize every thought you had? These ideas are terrifying, but they're still so enticing. I don't like where they're going with with their ideas about technology. I, I find it really frightening and disturbing, but I kind of get where they're coming from. Like, I understand that death is unacceptable, and I basically agree with that position. I think <laughs> I think they're right, that it, it's, it's, it's not cool that we all have to die. I'm definitely on board with that. I wouldn't be the first to say that. That's not a particularly radical position to take, but I think they're onto something. And so, yeah, I mean, the book is really, it, it grows out of that identification and also like a fascination with a group of people who would say, yeah, it's not cool that we have to die. It's unacceptable. What are we going to do about it? Let's do something about it. That's where, that's where it gets really interesting for me. Like, I really wanted to implicate myself as much as possible in this world, which I never really succeeded in doing, actually. But, like, my ideal scenario when I was writing the book was to become converted in some way, was to become as implicated as possible in this stuff. And maybe for someone to convince me to, be, to become a transhumanist, that was, like, my ideal outcome. So I wanted to kind of, you know, I was definitely skeptical, and I never succeeded in kind of transcending my own skepticism but i always kind of wanted to be like skeptical about my skepticism if that makes sense so i'm i'm curious after all the time you spent with transhumanists did it change anything for you uh well i'm not a transhumanist (laughs) and i I never got an implant or anything like that i mean i uh, i mean the short answer is no so from that point of view 
the book is an abject failure. <laughs> like I, <laughs> I came out of it with more or less my ideas intact, which I didn't really want to. But at the same time, there were long periods where, like, just in terms of like the philosophy of it and the 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 way of thinking of human beings as like mechanisms and the body and the brain as a meat machine, which is this phrase that keeps coming up in the book. And、um, transhumanists love talking about the body as meat and you know the. the The mind as a machine and all this stuff. I dip into it a little bit in the book. The sort of experience of myself as a as a mechanism became quite sort of like it it rattled me. We may all just be sentient meat, flapping our meat at each other, but this may not always be the case. Things are changing fast. Uploading our brains may not be a possibility anytime soon, but human clones, radically altered bodies, or artificial intelligence are no longer elements of distant science fiction worlds. What about you? Would you upload your brain? Would you connect your nervous system to the internet? Would you like to live forever? I know that death is inevitable, but like most people, I imagine I'm not that happy about that idea. And I'm certainly fascinated by the technologies of radical life extension, even if they're riddled with contradictions and improbabilities and with dangers. In the meantime, I guess I'll just keep reading science fiction. That's it for another week of words to that effect. Thank you so much for listening. The next episode is going to continue with the theme of the future. It'll be about utopias, creating a more perfect world, and I'll be looking at this in both fiction and in real life. So keep an ear out. That's in two weeks. Special thanks this week to my two guests, Thomas Connolly and Mark O'Connell. There are links to both of their bios and work on the Words to That Effect website, which is wttepodcast.com. You can find out more about To Be a Machine as well. If you've enjoyed this episode, you will really enjoy the book, so I would definitely recommend it. Music this week was by the incredibly talented Francesco Torrisi, an Italian-born, Dublin-based musician who plays multiple instruments in multiple styles. I've put links to all of his work on the website as well. There was also music by the brilliant Paddy Mulcahy, a composer and producer from Limerick City. All the track listings, links to his music, and more are on the website wttepodcast.com, where you'll also find lots more about transhumanism, other episodes, articles, and lots more. Finally, if you're looking for another podcast to listen to, I thought I could recommend one I've really been enjoying. It's called What Am Politics, and it's great. It's about politics, but lots more as well. And it's just got that really nice balance between serious information and fun entertainment, which is not always that easy to do. They did a really great recent episode on the Watergate scandal, so I think you'll like it. You can listen on all the usual podcast places, and their website is whatampolitics.com. So that's it for another week. You can get in touch or follow the show on Facebook, Instagram, and I'm on Twitter at cedreid, c-e-d-r-e-i-d. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll see you in a fortnight. This podcast is part of the Head Stuff Podcast Network.